Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear Rita Dove speaking at the Key West Literary Seminar. Born in 1952, Rita Dove is among the most accomplished American poets of our time. Her early book, Thomas and Beulah, a collection of poems based on her grandparents' courtship, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1987. When she was appointed U.S. Poet Laureate in 1993, Dove was the youngest poet ever to receive that honor. She is currently Commonwealth Professor of English at the University of Virginia. In this talk, Rita Dove says the poet's task is to bring every moment alive. How she approaches that challenge, through lyric poems, dramatic monologues, and musically inflected phrasing, is revealed in the excerpt she reads from Sonata Mulatica. This book brings to life the story of George Bridgetower, a mixed-race violinist in the early 19th century who crossed paths with Beethoven. The title of her talk, How Does a Shadow Shine, comes from a line in the last poem of the book. The Key West Literary Seminar was founded in 1983 and is dedicated to supporting American writers. Each January, the seminar hosts an international gathering of readers and writers. In 2010, the theme of the seminar honored the poet Richard Wilbur and celebrated the past 60 years of American poetry. Here is Rita Dove. My topic, How Does a Shadow Shine? It's the last line of a, of a book that I just finished writing, it was published in March, called Sonata Mulatica, which deals with one man's life, but in its essence actually addresses something that I think all of us are dealing with. It's not just how do you make, in this case, historical uh, non-entity, you could say, someone who didn't make it into the history books, how do you bring them to life, but actually it's about how do you bring every moment alive, which is, I think, what the poet's task is. And it is what Richard Wilbur does so brilliantly, bring every moment, every, the smallest moment alive and make it shimmer. But because I only have 30 minutes to render a life to you, I'm going to use the book as an example of um, how I went about, in this particular case, bringing something, making a shadow shine. And I have to render this life to you. It's one that it took 200 plus pages of poems to do. So this talk and this reading is going to be a, a kind of an illustration itself of the gaps in historical presence in the recreation of living experience. I'm going to hop, skip, and jump you through the life of George Augustus Paul Green Bridgetower. He was a mixed-race violinist. He was born in 1780 in Central Europe. His mother was white, um, born in what is modern-day Poland now, Poland slash Hungary, it's difficult to know. And a man, his father, who billed himself as an African prince. Now, George Bridgetower became the concertmaster for the Prince of Wales orchestra, the prince who would become George IV. But his real claim to fame, or his snatch at fame, I guess you could say, is when he went to Vienna to meet Beethoven, 
who then composed the sonata for him, and he premiered it in 1803. It's a sonata we know as the Kreutzer Sonata. Now the question is, what happened? Why wasn't the sonata called the Bridge Tower? What happened? By all reports, and this is very scanty, because history doesn't care when you drop out, you know. By, by all reports, Bridge Tower made us, as he says, a saucy remark about a girl. Uh, and Beethoven took offense. Flew into a rage, did that Beethoven thing. Um, and destroyed the, de the original dedication which was an Italian, which uh, translated kind of meant to my, um, for the mulatto bridge tower, great pal and mulatto composer. So they were pals uh, until that girl got in the way. And then bridge tower dropped back down into the murk of anonymity. But some, somewhere behind that anecdote lies many stories and many shadows. and. When I first came across this story, I was astounded, and I didn't, I was astounded, as anyone would be. I didn't think immediately, ooh, poetry. Uh, but um, in fact, I, I shied away from it, because I thought, um, the, the life intrigued me. It began to haunt me, and then I wanted to understand more about him. And then I thought, how do you, the, I started writing poems, and I thought, how do you make this come alive? You don't want to do a, a BBC production. You know, you don't want it to be the way history often is when you see something, you're intrigued more by the costumes than the actual people. Um, and what I think one has to do in any case, and this applies across the board, it's not only just trying to render something that is historical or is true at the moment and making it into a work of art, hopefully, you know, it applies also to how do you make a sonnet beautiful beyond the fact that it is a sonnet? How do you make metrics, as, as Tim said, um, matter beyond themselves? And I realized that one of the things that we have to always be reminded of in this case is that the characters, the people involved are sounds corny, just ordinary people. And everyone has the same weight at that moment in time. In history's view, they have different weights. But at the moment of the poem, whether it's the Prince of Wales, or the father, or the boy, or some beggar on the street, they all have equal weight. They all have lives that matter intensely, at least to them. And that's enough at that moment. Let, let me start by reading one of the early poems in the book in which what, what I was trying to do in this poem was to actually demystify the whole process of writing a, an, a, about a period that was not my own. And it's called Prologue of the Rambling Sort. This is a tale of light and shadow, what we hear and the silence that follows. Remember this as we set out across sea and high roads, as talk turns to gentlemen and valets, grave robbers, and tormented souls. This is a story about music and what it does to those who make it, whom it enslaves. 
Yes, slavery of all kinds enters into the mix, although the skin of our protagonist does not play so great a role in his advancement and subsequent fade from grace as might be imagined. Or does it? Rather, let us say that the racial divide has not yet been invented. You lived, you died, things happened between the two. But you are here for the story. The story someone penned in thirst and anger on an uncharted desert isle, then stuffed into a bottle that now floats, a glassine porpoise swell upon swell, too small for anyone to find, until the paper inside finally crisps, tanned beyond recognition by the sun that is its constant lover. So it is a lost story, but we will be imagining it anyway. We'll leave out the boring parts. There'll be marching bands, wardrobe changes, and of course, love, melting hearts, sweaty meringues, flowers of the realm, and the occasional heave-to in the shrubbery. <laughs> Political cartoons, honorable, quiet fools. The major players, father and son, son and father, two composers, a violinist between them, an African prince in Turkish robes, a prince of Wales turned regent, turned king, an assistant keeper of the wardrobe to the queen, always the wait staff, ever vigilant, eye and ear-y. A music student turned copyist, a performer turned entrepreneur, a faux emperor, a famed chef, a fiddling beggar, plus assorted fops and dabblers, countesses and dwarves, all with their freakish bundles of accoutrements, turbans and reticules, wigs and vinaigrettes, brooches painted in the shape of a lover's eye. Enter two prodigies of an age but not a color, an absent mother and an all-too-present father, a fattening son and his maddening sire, a small man in his indigestion, a fat man in his gout, rabble and revolutionaries, guillotines cranking up in time with the organ grinders, just your average gulp of hope and gobble of terror. Then picture a river pouring itself through a city, picking up garbage and gulls, doused in barge oil, speckled with swans, lapping and sloshing and pooling. That's how we'll be traveling. And the rest, as they say, is background music. Ah, but what heavenly music that was. It's, it rambles, I know it rambles. <laughs> but. What I discovered uh, as I started to research, and I did research this guy, but I researched, it wasn't research, it was passion more, and then I realized that's what research is sometimes, is that I had to not just learn about the age that he lived in, how could this mixed-race kid survive, but I had to learn it so well that I forgot that I learned it. In other words, you do the research, research and then you put it away. You write the sonnet without thinking, uh, okay, I've got to do the ABAB and I've got to assess that. And, you know, you do, 
you have to feel it. So in the end, uh, what happened was that I, I, I did lots of research, but then I put all the books away and began to write and check the facts later. That's fine. Uh, so that's the scene. When, when I began to write, I realized that what intrigued me about the whole thing was even not even that moment when he meets Beethoven, but the fact that he was once a little boy. He was a prodigy. He began playing when he was 10. And for all, all of these fops and kings and emperors trotting across, across the scene at the time, people that he had, in fact, hobnobbed with, he started out as just a boy. Um, Robert Pinsky last night talked, he had this brilliant definition of modernism uh, that, that, disrupts, that disruption of the complacency that we have. And, and I think that's very, very apt. This poem disrupts itself all the time. It has two sides, um, which I can't really show you. Uh, and, uh, but if you can think of the poem as having one poem going down the, I'm doing it your way, the uh, left side of the page, which is in, in italics. It's the stage directions. And the other side is the poem. So I'm going to try to read both parts. I have no idea if this will work. Disappearance. Kill the lights, cut the atmo. A boy and his violin, that's it. One tucked into the side of the other, both small, unremarkable. No, 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 add the pink gel. Until one of them moves, the boy lifts his arm or the violin floats up to kiss his chin. Spot number eight now, a whisper of gold. Grow it and fade the pink on my count. Five, four, three, slowly, slowly. Drown the four stage. Let it seep in. A man can vanish between the downstroke and the first note's sigh. From one word to the next, a wink and a nod. He'll evaporate under a lady's glance as her smile slides across the room. Do we want more fog machines here? A little much, maybe, but spill some purple along the boards and back, then lift it up, up the scrim like a rising curtain of melancholy, an aurora borealis of the soul. I know, that sucked. You get the drift. <laughs> but a boy looks out from the backs of his eyes. A boy stays where you put him, Invisible until you hiccup. Full floods on my mark. Go. And suddenly he's there. The disruption of our tendency to um, really feel the, I think, pity for the boy comes from also this, this marketing that, in fact, his father did a lot of because the African prince was a soccer mom, actually, in disguise. He took, when he discovered that his boy could play the violin, he took him everywhere. He packed him up, took him from Central Europe to France, and then to England, dressed him up in outrageous clothes. He dressed up in these clothes as well. Um, clothes of um, anything that looked exotic, so a 
pantaloons, Turkish slippers, um, anything that people thought was African. And uh, he realized that this was, you know, it was important to market this exoticism at that time. The boy was 10 years old, George was 10 years old. And he um, made it to London. His uh, father took him there. Right before he got to London, the father gave him a wardrobe lesson, trying to teach him how to present himself. And with this entrance of the father, there, there came another quandary, and that is, how do you, or how you know, did I, in this case, represent different voices? And I had to realize you know, that each person had their own rhythm. They had their own bass line upon which um, they built their, their music. And the father had a real, he was quite jazzy, I think. So let me read a poem from the father's point of view, and then I'm going to read one from another uh, musician's point of view. This is a father giving his son the wardrobe lesson. The wardrobe lesson. They're, they're in the uh, south of England, in Brighton, actually. Everyone in this brine-soused village believes an African loves color. So let it be red for a promenade along the stein with a splash of yellow to inflame their watery sensibilities. I think it's the sun they so yearn for. Blue saddens this close to the sea, though turquoise is beckoning and emeralds best a hue entertained only in furnishings. True, we are props of a sort. Let's not forget it. Yet what an aspect will project unleashed among the masses. Against our darker palette, any color thrills. The main thing is fabric and plenty of it. Clouds of silk, waves of damask to be cast off or furled neat to the chest with a certain sly emphasis. You'll learn these sophistications in time. For now, it's enough to remember we are here to confound them, these wizened polyps crossing the sands in their creaking bathing machines. So, bright sashes and billowing sleeves, rings on as many fingers as you dare, perhaps a turban or some other headdress to lend majesty without competing. The ladies adore a cape different from a cloak. This you can wear inside, where one brisk swirl will conjure a fable of perfumed trysts and moonlit sword play. As for the embroidered slippers, ungainly as they might seem, the upturned toes do not emasculate. Each step becomes necessarily deliberate and so recalls the boudoir. Don't flinch. It won't do to ignore what waits behind each smile, that unvoiced sigh accompanying your every tremolo. Go ahead. Examine those upturned faces in the concert hall, their tiny gasps and glistening cheeks. I've seen it, boy, even for one young as you. Ah, the ladies are always bored and lonely. You will not need a horse if you have a cape. <laughs> he was a clown. Um, the flamboyancy of him uh, you know, comes across, I think, in, in most of his poems. But um, 
Now let me present another person because they leave England, south of England, they go to London because that's where you had to go if you're going to make your life. And one thing I realized was that there, at that time, you had to get your music live. There were no iPods. <laughs> if you could not go to a concert or afford to go to a concert, you heard the music on the street. And when George Bridgetower, as a 10-year-old, was being pushed through the streets of London to go play at the um, <clears throat> Drury Lane Theater with his violin under his arm, he had to pass by another musician whose name was Black Billy Waters. He was a fiddler. He was black, African. He had a peg leg. And he fiddled on the street. His pitch was in front of the Adelphi Theater. Now, gee, I'm trying to recreate also, I'm reading like how this came about, because I started with the fact that he had done this thing for Beethoven, he had premiered this sonata. But there was so little to go on and uh, to know about him. As I began to dig deeper, I stumbled upon a really amazing document. What it was was a diary. And it was a diary by a woman named Mrs. Poppendieck. She was the wardrobe keeper to the Queen of England, who, when she was very old, sat down and wrote about her life um, when she was the keeper to the queen. Her children wanted to keep her entertained, and they said, hey, mom, why don't you write about what you did? This woman wrote two volumes in which, which are very wardrobe-heavy, I must say. She, <laughs> every... But if it were not for her, who did not actually try to relate important events, but really told the story from behind the scenes, so much about Bridgetown would not have been known. Her husband entertained, um, he was an amateur musician, so he was interested in this young boy. He helped. And so this woman, one of the few women actually in the book, and that's another story altogether, um, actually built the story. She was the one that uh, told a lot of the stuff behind, and she mentioned Black Billy Waters. So here's Black Billy Waters, at his pitch. Um, this is a villanelle gone wild. I just couldn't stop it. Black Billy Waters at his pitch. All men are beggars, white or black. Some worship gold, some pedal brass. My only house is on my back. I play my fiddle, I stay on track. Give my peg leg, thank you, sire, a jolly thwack. All men are beggars, white or black. And the plink of coin in my gunny sack is the bittersweet music in a life of lack. My only house is on my back. Was a soldier once led a failed attack in that greener country for the Union Jack. All men are beggars, white or black. Crippled as a crab, sugary as sassafras. I'm Black Billy Waters and you can kiss my sweet ass. My only house weighs on my back. There he struts like a Turkish crackerjack. London cues for any novelty, and that's a fact. All men are beggars, white or black. And, and to this bright brown upstart hack among kings, one piece of advice, don't unpack. 
All the home you'll own is on your back. I'll dance for the price of a mean cognac, sing gay songs like a natural-born maniac. All men are bakers, white or black. So let's scrape the cat gut clean, stack the cords three deep. See, I'm no quack, though my only house is on my back. All men are bakers, white or black. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to make a big skip and a hop and a jump uh, here because he lived a long life. He lived till he was 80. When he was 23, about, was when he met Beethoven. And when he had his moment of fame, and then there's a long, slow decline. Uh, so I'm going to skip a little bit and go to Vienna because when he was 23, by all accounts, he was an amazing musician. Um, all of the praise that he gets is tinged with a kind of wonder that this African boy can play at all. Um, but he wanted to go and meet the bad boy of music, Beethoven, because he heard he was an incredible composer. And he does this, and he does manage to get to you know, a, a cocktail party where Beethoven is and, and play, and they become um, great friends. There's little snippets of things. Beethoven writing a, a, they have a letter from Beethoven saying, hey, you want to go get a beer? Something like that. That's all, uh, but from that to intuit the rest. As I said at the beginning, every person has equal weight in a life that you're living, you know, in the moment, in the real moment. And that was brought home to me when I realized that Beethoven was the big shadow standing in my way. He was the one the, to write in Beethoven's voice, to assume, to presume to write in Beethoven's voice. That He's that thing on the mantelpiece. He's that little white bust. Was what was frightening me for a long time. Once I said he's just a, you know, a person, and once I thought of it that way, then the floodgates opened. So um, this is a poem. Beethoven is about to return to Vienna. He's going deaf. By all accounts, the way he went deaf, it was very slow, um, and it was erratic. So that there were good days, bad days, squeaks, whistles, fade in and fades out. And he hadn't told anyone, but he's trying to decide if he's going to come back. At the same time, unbeknownst to him, Bridge Tower is making his way across the continent to meet him. And this is Beethoven's, Ludwig van Beethoven's return to Vienna. Three miles from my adopted city lies a village where I came to peace. The world there was a calm place. Even the great Danube, no more than a pale ribbon tossed onto the landscape by a girl's careless hand. Into this silhouette, into this stillness, I had been ordered to recover. The hills were gold with late summer. My rooms were two, plus a small kitchen, situated upstairs in the back of a cottage at the end of the Herrengasse. From my window, 
I could see onto the courtyard where a linden tree twined skyward, leafy umbilicus canted toward light, warped in the very act of yearning, and I would feed on the sun as if that alone would dismantle the silence around me. At first I raged, then music raged in me, rising so swiftly I could not write quickly enough to ease the roiling. I would stop to light a lamp, and whatever I'd missed, larks flying to nest, church bells, the shepherds home toward evening, song, rushed in, and I would rage again. I am by nature a conflagration. I would rather leap than sit and be looked at. So when my proud city spread her gypsy skirts, I re-entered, burning toward her greater constant light. Call me rough, ill-tempered, slovenly. I tell you, every tenderness I have ever known has been nothing but thwarted violence, an ache so permanent and deep, the lightest touch awakens it. It is impossible to care enough. I have returned with a second symphony and 15 piano variations, which I've named Prometheus, after the rogue Titan, the half a god who knew the worst sin is to take what cannot be given back. I smile and bow, and the world is loud. And though I dare not lean in to shout, can't you see that I'm deaf? I also cannot stop listening. I'll end with uh, two poems here. One, a very short one, um, and then the final poem. Because as I was working on the book, I realized that the actual event that triggered everything, the shadow event, the event that, uh, the, the saucy remark, was something that I was circling, and that in the end it wasn't, important to recreate that moment or to invent that moment. What was important was to make, to make sure that the characters in the, in the world was created so that you could understand that moment and imagine it for yourself. Uh, but in this poem, which happens after the concert, after the triumph, after all that, if you want to read that, you have to read by the book. Um, this it's Bridge Tower, who comes back to London and leads a perfectly respectable life as a musician. He just isn't the musician. He gets a degree at the university so he can teach, which sounds familiar. Um, and this is his kind of master's uh, concert. Cambridge, Great St. Mary's Church. I kneel, but not in sufferance not in faith. There is a fulcrum beyond which the bow tip wobbles. No ardency nor forceful wrist can make it sing. I am there at wit's balancing point. Music pours through the blackened nave, hollowing my bones to fit the space it needs. It needs so much of me, the soul's wicked cartridge emptying as fast as it fills. I kneel because even the reed bends before God's laughter splits it and the storm moves on.
except for the prologue. There are two prologues, actually. And this final poem, uh, the poet, or I, I never enter the work. It's not for me to do so. But then at the very end, I thought, um, I had to have my kind of argument with Bridge Tower, with history, with the whole thing. And I dragged my wonderful husband and my daughter to London again. They were so tired of London. Um, to, to walk the space that Bridge Tower had walked. There, there was a, a little bit, we knew a little bit about where he lived. Uh, we had the address for where he died. And after superimposing grids and stuff, I felt like some CSI person. We discovered that he had died. He had died in a, alone in a poor, subsidized housing, uh, witnessed by his neighbor who was illiterate, who signed the X and she knew who he was. But now, of course, it's the suburbs in the south of London. So we're going to the death place. The end with MapQuest. Will I cry for you, Paul Green? Will I drag out your end, though it is long past, though I, though I drove slowly past the place of your dying days and recorded what I knew I'd find there? Families in townhouses, a sensible Vauxhall parked askew in the carport behind the green grate. Will I tell you, whispering to no one in particular, how even the street sign seemed greasy and that it was raining, Natch, and whenever I tried to focus on the thought of you laid out in one of those miserable victory cottages, no turrets, no gilded palms, no jiggling regents, I had to do something, crack a joke or snap another useless photo of the Bellingdon Primary School. But when we turned left to round the block for the fifth time, it was the perfectly dismal sight of a fast food joint on the corner, Sam's Kebabs, which cheered me. Would you understand the red and yellow neon script shouting like a Janissary band, so tacky it was buoyant, colorful because there was no good reason to be afraid of shouting with the whole world determined not to hear you? though they tried to shut you up all the time. Do I care enough, George Augustus Bridgetower, to miss you? I don't even know if I really like you. I don't know if your playing was truly gorgeous or if it was just you, the sheer miracle of all that darkness swaying close enough to touch, palm tree and sambo and glistening tiger running circles into golden oil. Ah, Master B, little great man, tell me, how does a shadow shine? Thank you very much. That was Rita Dove speaking at the Key West Literary Seminar in January 2010. You can learn more about the seminar at kwls.org. The poems read by Rita Dove in this talk are from Sonata Mulatica, which was published in 2009. In addition to her multiple collections of poetry, Dove has published short stories, essays, an anthology of poetry, and a play. You can read more about Rita Dove and a selection of her poems at poetryfoundation.org. 
You'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from PoetryFoundation.org.